Psalm 14 To the choir master of David The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that you have created. Lord, we are here to rejoice and to be glad in it. Father, thank you for the amazing message of the gospel, a message that tells us that even though we have sinned against you, even though we have all in our hearts turned aside and turned away from you, Because of your infinite love for us, you sent us a Savior, your one and only Son, Christ Jesus the Lord, to rescue us and to redeem us from our sins and to bring us into the family of God and to give us eternal life. Lord, this morning, it's these gospel truths that orient our lives and orient our hearts. And Lord, as we consider this passage in Psalm 14, we pray that you would once again produce faith in our hearts Lord, for all of us who are followers of Jesus this morning, we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would help us, Lord, to become more and more devoted to you, that we would become more and more worshipful, that we would become more and more obedient to your law so that we might glorify you and live lives of blessing. God, we pray for any who have joined us today who are not Christians. Perhaps they're here on this holy week exploring Christianity or considering what it is that the scriptures say about you, Lord, we pray that you would minister to them today. We pray, Lord, that you would give them faith, that, Lord, you would help them to understand the truth of your word and help them to understand the truth of the gospel and to put their trust in Jesus today. So, Lord, bless us now in your holy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. Great to see all of you. And what an amazing week. I'm so excited to be able to celebrate Holy Week and read through the scriptures this week as Pastor Justin was just talking about and listen to music to just try to orient my heart and my mind around this amazing and significant week in the church calendar. Well, here we are continuing our series in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 14 today. And it begins, the, the title of it even is, The Fool Says There Is No God. And that's a title that we get in the ESV here. And I titled this morning's message, The Foolishness of Atheism. The Foolishness of Atheism. Now, although atheism has made significant inroads here in the secularized West over the past few decades, what I find to be super remarkable is how few people actually hold to that view. According to data by the Pew Research Center done just over a year ago, only 4%, 
of U.S. adults identify as atheists. Now, although a good many of our leading intellectuals are committed atheists, the vast majority of people just simply don't buy into their views. I'm sure when Richard Dawkins famously published The God Delusion 15 years ago, he imagined that it would shift the ideological landscape in far-reaching ways. But here we are. And for 96% of people, it is Dawkins who seems delusional. It seems to me that part of the reason is that the idea that there is no God or the idea that there is no higher power out there and that existence, all that we see came from non-existence is just so unbelievably counterintuitive. If you look at history and the history of human civilization, Across all cultures, all peoples at all times have been religious. Humans seem to have an innate spiritual component, we can call it a soul, and an innate awareness of a cause that is behind the creation that we are a part of. This is the exact point, of course, that the famous Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, Paul writes this, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, listen to this, is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, They are without excuse. And so according to the scriptures, when a person says that there is no God, there's a suppression that is going on. That person is making a decision to suppress what is obvious to human beings or what is intuitive to us as creatures made in God's image. And for the ancient Hebrews, that right there is the textbook definition of the fool. Sometimes when we think about a foolish person or we say, oh, that person's a fool. What we have in mind is that that person maybe isn't very smart. But in the Bible, the label fool has nothing to do with a person's IQ. It's not about whether or not that person's intelligent. The foolish person, according to the Bible, is the person who fails to live in alignment with reality. The foolish person is the one who fails to live their life in alignment with the way that things actually or really are. So there's a disconnect between reality and what's actually true and the way that that person operates and lives their life. And so the greatest act of foolishness that any person could commit is to say, there is no God. You cannot be more foolish according to biblical standards than to deny the existence of God. And so Psalm 14.1 famously begins this way, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now we need to distinguish here between two different types of atheists. Um, The first would be what we could call a theoretical atheist. This is what you and I typically think of in the 21st century when we think of an atheist. A theoretical atheist is a person who believes that God does not exist. They believe that God does not exist. This is the Richard Dawkins type of atheist. 
the one who would say to you that they have reasoned and they have worked through all of the data and all the information and intellectually they've landed in a position where they say God is not there. He does not exist. This is the theoretical atheist. But here's the interesting thing to keep in mind. Among those who claim that there is no God, oftentimes what you find is that their intellectual objections are a smokescreen for the real reason they don't believe in God, which is actually an emotional reason. What I mean by that is, and this is certainly not always the case, but what I mean by that is that for many people who say, oh, I've reasoned my way into atheism, actually what's beneath that is an emotional objection to God's existence. Let me put it to you differently. Simply put, they just don't want there to be a God. Pastor Tim Keller writes this. He says, many doubts about God's existence don't come from the intellect and mind, but from the heart. Some people don't want there to be a God. They have to obey, end quote. In other words, for some people, they rightly conclude that if God exists, if there is a creator out there that I'm accountable to, that's going to impact my lifestyle. That's going to change the things that I'm able to do and it's going to change how I live. And so I don't want that to be the case because I'm happy with the way that I live. I don't want to become like those weird Christian people. I want to keep doing what I'm doing. And there are plenty of people that way. Or I've talked to people who are atheists who one of their objections is that, they, and again, this is emotional, is that a close family member, somebody that they love, perhaps a parent who did not believe in God, was certainly not a Christian, has died. And so for them, if they were to accept Christianity, if they were to accept the idea that God created us and that God will judge us at the end of our lives, well, then what does that mean for my loved one? I don't want this to be true. Because if this is true, this changes things for me. But again, those are emotional reasons. Now, as I said, certainly not all atheists are driven by emotional reasons, but we need to be mindful that oftentimes when people say, oh, I know there's no God or that doesn't make sense, sometimes that is a smokescreen and there are deep-seated emotional reasons that they reject God's existence. But the first type of atheist, again, the one that we think about in the modern West is a theoretical atheist. They don't believe that God exists. The second type of atheist that we need to be aware of is a practical atheist. This is the practical atheist. This is the person who lives as if God does not exist. They live as if God is not present or active in the world. And the reason this is important to bring up is because this is certainly the type of person who's saying that there is no God that David had in mind as he wrote Psalm chapter 14. As I mentioned a moment ago, in the ancient world, all people were religious. There were, were almost no exceptions to that. Everybody that David could conceive of in his worldview at the time believed in God or believed in gods. They believed in higher beings. They believed in some creation narrative of how all of this came about. So David doesn't have in mind here somebody who says, oh, no, 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 this all just happened. What David has in mind is a practical atheist and by that, I mean somebody who believes that God is not active in the world right now. Somebody who believes that God is not present and is not caring about what we're doing in the world right now. 
So even though on one level they might believe that there's a God out there, they just don't think God cares, or they just don't care about what God cares about. So they're just living their life as if God is not there. They're doing the things that they want to do. Now, as Christians, what's so interesting is that as Christians, we can even live this way. And we do live this way every single time that we sin. Every single time that we sin, we are, from a practical standpoint, living like an atheist. We're denying the truth and the reality that God is there, that God is watching, that God does care about the things that we're doing. And some other thing matters more to us in that moment than God and his opinions. But whether you live like God doesn't exist or you believe that God doesn't exist, your life will still take on the same shape. It will be a life that does not please God. Notice how far-reaching the depravity of the fool is here in verse 1. First, we see that there's an inward component. David writes that they are corrupt. That speaks of what's going on at the level of our heart. They are corrupt. There's something wrong internally in the heart. There's also an upward component. He writes, they do abominable deeds. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says that these, this word here, this refers primarily to Godward offenses. Things that are abominable, these are things that are offensive to God. So there's an upward component to this. And then lastly, there's an outward component to this. He says, there is none who does good. So our actions toward other people are not good things. So again, when he looks at the depravity of the human, human condition apart from God, he's seeing this in multiple ways. There's, again, an inward component. There's a vertical or upward component, and there's an outward expression of this. We are fundamentally depraved, he says, according to verse 1. We also see this spelled out in Romans chapter 1, which I read from a moment ago. If you drop down to verse 21, Paul writes this. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Right there in that verse, we see the inward component, their foolish hearts were darkened, and the upward component, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. A few verses later in Romans 1, starting in verse 28, we see the outward working of this. Paul says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's quite a catalog of sin and of evil. But Paul is sort of prying back the the heart and the condition of human beings apart from God, and he's just showing us what's actually there. Sure, not every one of us identifies with every one of those sins, but all of us are identifying with something there. All of us are struggling with particular sins. 
Now, so far, this sounds like I'm just bashing atheists through verse 1, as if people who don't believe in God are some terrible moral monsters. But all of what I've said so far does not mean that atheists are destined to be more immoral than their religious counterparts. Sometimes atheists are depicted as these really awful people. And it's an oversimplification. As if atheists are always trying to destroy other people's faith. As if they're these terribly immoral people. It reminds me of this story of an elderly, godly woman. And this woman would every morning stand on her front porch. And she'd come out with her coffee. And she would say, Lord, I thank you for this day. Well, her neighbor was an atheist and that used to annoy him because he'd hear her saying that in his neighborhood every single morning. So a lot of mornings, he would shout back from his front window and he would say, there is no God at the old woman. Well, this old woman fell on hard times. And so one morning her prayer changed on the porch and she said, Lord, please help me. I've run out of food to eat. The atheist thought this is the perfect opportunity to teach this woman a lesson. That night, when the woman was asleep, the atheist brought over a box of food that he had purchased at the grocery store. He thought, I'm going to play a trick on her. And he set it there on her porch. He went to sleep. He got up extra early the next morning. He got his coffee ready. He wanted to see what was going to happen. And so when the woman stepped on the porch, she saw this box of food and she said, Lord, thank you for this food. And immediately the atheist shouted over to her, I gotcha. The Lord didn't give you that food. I did it. Well, the woman started jumping up and down and clapping her hands. And she said, praise the Lord. He not only sent me groceries, but he made the devil pay for them. (laughs) Now that's how atheists are typically thought of, right? Oh, he's out trying to mess with this elderly woman. Why won't he just leave her alone? But that's not the truth. It's not the truth for most of our experiences. If you know people who don't believe in God, oftentimes they're quite moral people. But it's also not true from the scripture. Psalm 14 is going to go on to make that point in the very next few verses. Whether you believe in God or not, all of us have the capacity to be pretty rotten people. Look at verses 2 and 3. Now David writes this in these verses. He says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Notice then, it's not just atheists or God deniers who are in the category of fools here. All humans are apart from God's grace. See, we might have excused ourselves from the judgment of verse 1. Right? Sitting here this morning saying, well, after all, I'm not an atheist. I believe in God. But notice how all-encompassing the language is here in verses 2 and 3. David writes, Any who understand who seek after God, all turned aside, none who does good, not even one. Now David is saying, look, as God looks down on human beings, every single one of them fit into this category of being sinful Every single person falls into the category of not doing what is right and not doing what they ought to do. This should help us to avoid saying the really foolish thing that is so often said, which is that people are basically good. How often have we heard that? How pervasive is that worldview? People are basically good. 
Now, if your standard of basically good is, well, you're not Adolf Hitler, or you're not a mass shooter like the tragedies that we've seen in Boulder and Atlanta recently, then of course, you're right. Most people are basically good, but that's not a very high standard of goodness. The truth is that people are basically, listen, selfish. The truth is that people are basically committed to doing what's best for themselves. Think about it this way. If you look at the history of the world, the history of the world is not the story of a few bad apples. The history of the world is a story of violence, oppression, war, deceit, exploitation written across every culture, across every nation, across every people group from the start of recorded human history. That's what the world looks like. People are not basically good. People do not naturally pursue what is in the best interest of other people. That's not our natural makeup to go, you know what, how about less for me and more for everybody else? And not only that, people do not naturally wake up and say, I am going to seek after God and seek after his righteousness. That's what I'm going to do. No, what we need is we need God to come and seek after us. And family, that's exactly what the storyline of the Bible tells us God has done. That even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even though you and I were enemies of God, even though you and I pursued our own self-preservation at the expense of other people. God loved us so much that he came and he pursued us. 2,000 years ago, God the Son, Jesus the Christ, came to this earth born of a virgin. And why did he come here? He came here to rescue us from our sins, to forgive us of our sins, to bring us into relationship with the God who created us, who knows us, who loves us, who wants to bless us, in short, to give us eternal life. In verses 4 through 6, we see here examples of how this sinfulness works out. We see, starting in verse 6, or excuse me, rather, verse 4, he says, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So look at the ways that sinfulness works itself out. He says, evildoers eat up my people as they eat bread. That reminds me of the words of Jesus when he rebuked the scribes as those who devour widows' houses in Luke 20, 47. The idea here is, exploiting other people, taking advantage of other people, taking away what they have to increase your own possessions and your own lot in life. You're devouring other people. He also says they do not call upon the Lord. We see this prayerlessness here and this pride here. Our sinfulness works itself out in such a way that we say, I don't need God. I can do it on my own. I can make it on my own. And so we don't pray. We're full of pride and we think we can make it on our own. And finally, it works itself out in direct oppression. He says, they shame the plans of the poor. The poor in the ancient world would have been 
pretty much destined to poverty and any plans that they were trying to make of, is there a way to get out of my lot in life? Can I somehow get ahead? Can I get a little bit more? The rich and oppressive in those cultures would have just shamed their plans and continued to oppress them and destroyed any hope that they had of getting ahead. But friends, this is what humanity is like. Apart from grace, we're selfish. We're looking out for number one. We worship the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But contrary to what the fool thinks, the Lord does exist and he is not unaware. As I've said before, the evil of this world are playing checkers. Okay, they're making all their plans, they're scheming, they're thinking that they're about to win the game, and meanwhile, God is playing 4D chess. God is looking at all of their plans, all of the things that they think that they're going to do to continue to get ahead and take advantage of people and violate the moral laws of the universe, and God's looking at all of it and saying, not so fast. It's never going to work out for you. Sure, you might have some short-term gains, but ultimately, all of your plans will be ruined. David knows that even though the evildoers appear to be getting on quite well with their oppression, they actually, according to verse 4, have no knowledge. And, they, and David knows that God is with the generation of the righteous in verse 5, and that the Lord is a refuge for the poor in verse 6. There's one other thing that David knows about those who live as if God's not there. He knows that although it appears that the wicked are doing great on the outside, on the inside, they are in great terror. Do you notice that there in verse 5? He says, there they are in great terror. What does he mean by that? James Boyce, a very well-known pastor who was the former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, He points to psychological terror here. He says, what is the terror here in verse 5? It's psychological terror. What he means by that is it's that gnawing sense of guilt and that fear of judgment that people all have to deal with because of their consciences. It's that sense that what I'm doing is, is fundamentally wrong. And so even though throughout the day you might be able to suppress those feelings and put the smile on your face, When you try to lay your head down on your pillow at night, you feel that sense of guilt. Things are going to have to be accounted for. James Boyce gets this from Psalm 53, which Psalm 53 is almost identical to Psalm 14. There's only two verses that are slightly altered in Psalm 53. And that's where the key to understanding verse 5 comes from. In Psalm 53, the verse that, is very similar to verse 5 here in Psalm 14, goes like this. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. So Boyce points out that there is no kind of external circumstance that's creating the terror. There is no terror. There's nothing terrifying happening. From all that we can see, their life is secure. They're the ones with the position of power, and they're the one exploiting other people and abusing other people. They look like they've got everything going well for them, and yet they are in terror. And so Boyce points out that, again, this is an internal or psychological terror, this feeling or this sense of guilt and potential judgment in the future. 
Well, one day that guilt and that fear of punishment that most humans, if they haven't completely seared their conscience, deal with, is going to give way to the actual judgment where we stand before the Lord himself and all of us have to give an account for the things that we've done in our life. But that judgment still hasn't happened yet. And so David here offers this heartfelt cry for God's ultimate vindication, God's ultimate salvation in verse 7. It's a great conclusion to this psalm. He says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That was David's longing. That was David's hope as he's looking at the brokenness of the world. As he's looking at the sinfulness of humanity. As he's looking at the oppression that happens under the sun. He's saying, oh, that God would send salvation out of Israel. And here we can find a Palm Sunday connection from this Old Testament passage. What is Palm Sunday? Well, Palm Sunday is about the people of Israel welcoming their king, their Messiah, into the holy city of Jerusalem. Here's John 12, 12 through 15, which describes Palm Sunday. We read this, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So what then is the connection between Psalm 14 and Palm Sunday? The connection is this. First, the Savior had to come into Zion before salvation could come out of Zion. First, the Savior had to come into Zion or Jerusalem before salvation could come out of Zion. What I mean by that is that Jesus first had to come into Jerusalem to go to the cross to deal with our sins and be raised from the dead to deal with death before we could experience salvation. Had Christ not gone to the cross where he bore the sins of God's people, had Christ not entered that, empty, or entered that tomb and then left it empty three days later, there could be no salvation coming to God's people. And so the Savior Jesus had to enter in first into that holy city and he did that on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. And many of the people were receiving him as the king of Israel and celebrating him and asking him to save them now, to deliver them now. But they shared the same sort of expectations that David himself shared in Psalm 14. See, David had this aching and this longing in Psalm 14 that God would save now, that God would bring salvation out of Israel But what David was looking for is he was looking for God to silence the fool and to bring uninterrupted flourishing to the nation of Israel. But God had something richer and fuller in store for his people. God was going to answer David's prayer, but God was going to do it by providing something far more important and something far more lasting than David could have imagined. Forgiveness of sins 
and eternal life to all who trust in him. And family, this is what God still offers to the world today. Palm Sunday is about Jesus being welcomed into Jerusalem as God's king, as the one who would save God's people. And so the way to respond rightly on Palm Sunday is to once again receive Jesus as the savior and the king of your life, of my life. To put yourself in the position of the rest of humanity depicted in Psalm 14, sinful and in need of a savior. And to look completely to the salvation that comes out of Zion from a cross and an empty tomb as your only hope for deliverance and eternal life. That's how we respond rightly to Palm Sunday. Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning for your word. God, we thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Lord, your word helps us to understand the way things really are. Your word helps us to understand the way we truly are. And Lord, this morning we are reminded that apart from grace, every single one of us are driven by selfishness and self-interest. Every single one of us is most concerned with our own preservation and perhaps the preservation of those closest to us. Apart from grace, every single one of us wants to return uh, insults on other people. We want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Lord, apart from grace, every single one of us is again worshiping the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. But God, although that's true, we this morning are gathered together to celebrate another even more powerful truth, which is that because of your love, grace has come. Because of your love, grace has been offered to every single one of us through your son, Jesus Christ. And by faith in him, we can experience brand new life. Through faith in him, we can experience a transformed heart. And we can begin to love you and to begin to love others, even as we love ourselves. And so, Lord, this morning, we thank you that salvation has come out of Zion because the Savior first entered Zion 2,000 years ago. And when he did, he laid down his life on the cross for our sins. So that for all of us who turn from our sins and choose Christ as our Savior and Lord, we would be forgiven. We would be reconciled to our Father in heaven. And through his resurrection from the grave, we would be assured of our own future resurrection. That we would experience eternal life with you. What a great salvation that has come out of Zion. Father, I pray this week as we journey through Holy Week, as our eyes and our hearts are fixated on the cross and the death of Jesus on Friday night, and then one week from today as we celebrate the fact that the tomb is empty, Christ is alive, and Christ will return, I pray, Lord, again, that our faith would be strengthened. Lord, that you would help us to continue to keep our hearts and our minds fixated on what is actually true in the world that we're living in. God, we love you. We worship you today. We exalt you today. 
And we do all of that because of your great love for us that was displayed 2,000 years ago in and through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.